in light of a mighty fortress, I, I feel compelled to pray also for just for a moment, if you will. Father, I pray against what is dark and forbidding and personal and cunning. I pray for what is not flesh and against what is not flesh and blood. I pray for insight into the world that is at best opaque, often inscrutable, like your will. I ask for mercy for the Ray family, for Becky Phillips, for James Wade. I pray that you would heal Justin Cantor. I pray that you would strengthen every heart that we know in this room. I pray that you would help us to hear what is good and true and beautiful and that we might know you as holy and long to be holy and in our failures at holiness to also know you as merciful, not as either or, but as both. So in whatever else you have for us in our time together, I ask your spirit to do a work on our behalf that we cannot do in ourselves. And so we thank you that you make us those promises. We ask that you would keep them. In Jesus' name, amen. His name is Gordon Marino, and he's a retired professor of philosophy, and now he's a curator of a library in Minnesota. And he sat with a friend who was dying, who had a week to live, and who said to him, I can't believe my life story is over. And after that experience, Gordon Marino was kind of sent reeling. What do I do with that? And he, and he said this, he said, um, while my wife slept peacefully, I went to the couch for some self-analysis, and all I could think of was the people I'd hurt, some of them dead, but all of them out of reach, and I tried turning on the television to turn off my steroid-infected superego, and that didn't work. I tried any number of means. I tried, tried anything to bring about forgetfulness. I reminded myself of the positive effects I've had on a few lives. However, those deeds seemed incommensurable with harms I had visited, harms a half-century past that I could never undo. It was enough to prompt me to pray for the faith to pray and to pray for the possibility of repentance. Uh, that dude behind him, that's not Ronald McDonald without his makeup. That's, that's Soren Kierkegaard, and he is a professor of philosophy with a focus in Soren Kierkegaard. And so he runs to Kierkegaard for insight. And Kierkegaard had a lot to say about death and about how to face it. And there's a word in an essay he wrote about it that he feels like all of us need to discover or have it discovered in our hearts, and it's to think of death with earnestness. And it's not a word we choose too very often. I earnestly commit unto you, whatever. But in his way of speaking, earnestness means you don't pretend that death's not coming and we come up with any number of reasons to pretend that it isn't, but we're also not paralyzed by the recognition that it is coming. And that's earnestness. And if you can live between those two errors, you have found not only a way to think of death, but a way to think of life. Now, Marino, I don't know what his commitments are metaphysically or theologically, if he has any at all. And a lot of people 
if you know Danish Soren Kierkegaard, he was a Christian, and so he spoke from a position of believing in resurrection. But for those that maybe can't even go that far, Marino says this about why earnestness ought to be an appealing to anybody, regardless of your faith commitments. He says this, those who have put the possibility of faith to bed might instead think of earnestness as being passionately concerned with what kind of human being you are becoming. I say that all by way of introduction to put into context what we've been doing for the last nine weeks. We've been, for months, we've been thinking about what does it mean to believe in the Holy Spirit? Not as this little spook on a shelf, but one who indwells us and moves in us and does a work in us to produce in us what we have called the fruit of the Spirit. And Stacy created a great image this week that certainly captures how you and I ought to think of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are not nine separate things. Those are nine slices of one thing. And just like an orange, there is no orange without all those slices. On a fruit tree, you can pick one fruit, and then all of the other fruits are there, and it's still a fruit tree. But if you take any slice out, it's no longer an orange. Not as an orange is designed. That's the fruit of the Spirit. That is who we are becoming or meant to become with the help of the Spirit. And where we began this whole little sub-journey through the whole talking about fruit of the Spirit, we started with Ben Franklin, who decided he was going to develop virtue in himself and he was going to focus on all of these things that he felt like were essential to his own heart, but also to the essential to the, the forging of a whole new society. If everybody can embody and embrace these virtues, then society will be better. And he had this little chart and he kind of charted himself and like, I screwed that one up today and this one wasn't so bad. And you know, the wife said, what wife? Um, uh, this was really good either. And after a while, he's like, this is not working. Because he knew. It's not about that. It's not about, I'm going to just be this. I'm going to use my will, and I'm going to value that, and I'm going to be virtuous. It doesn't work like that. And thank God it's not like that, because if that was our attempt, if that's what God had said to us, I need you to be virtuous. Like, I'm done on day three. And so we've got the fruit of the Spirit. It is the fruit of the Spirit that I would like to commend unto you that is produced by the work of the Spirit in us, and it's how we get to that place of earnestness. If you're here today and you don't believe in God, I welcome you. But you will have to think about death. And you can either be paralyzed by it or you can pretend it's not coming. But I commend to you what Kierkegaard said, earnestness is your dig. If you believe in the Lord and you believe that the Spirit actually works in us through that, we should talk about it. And we're going to wrap up that little sub-conversation today with talking about the last slice in the orange, and that is self-control, <laughs> what we all excel at. What is that? Why does he end it there? We're going to think about self-control under three headings from a passage in 1 Corinthians 9. What's the goal of it, really? It's, probably, it's not what you think. But, but then let's also talk about the grain it cuts across. Well, that's cryptic, don't worry. And then finally, we want to ask, what is the grace for it? What's the goal of it? What's the grain it cuts across? But then finally, what is the grace for self-control? And there is grace for that. We're in 1 Corinthians 9. I wonder if you might stand, focus your attention. We'll read it together, or I'll read it for you, Adler. Give you a second to turn in your Bibles to it. 1 Corinthians 9. We'll start in verse 23. 
I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives a prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So, for a minute, let's talk about the goal of self-control, maybe from a light-hearted way of putting it. Okay, sit in that chair. All right, here's the deal. Marshmallow, for you. You can either wait, and I'll give you another one if you wait, or you can eat it now. When I come back, I'll give you two, another one, so then you'll have two. But stay in here and stay in the chair till I come back, okay? All right. Go do something and then I'll come back. It smells yummy. Oh, it smells really
Maybe they won't notice. Um, what is this? I don't know. Let's talk about the goal of self-control. The goal of self-control is not self-control. It, it's obviously referring to a mastery over what one desires and what one does, but self-control is not the goal. The other slices of the fruit of the Spirit, they're all one, they're all interconnected, they're all comprehensive. You can't have one without all of them. Self-control is, let's say, to mix metaphors here, it's kind of like the border collie. When, when you feel patience start to shrivel, <laughs> um, self-control is that which uh, tries to restore to you a sense of perspective. When you are confusing kindness with coddling, and I do, and you do, it is self-control that reminds you of what the moment really calls for, and sometimes it is to rescue them from their plight, and other times it's not. Self-control comes into play when gentleness feels wrong. And you would prefer to be harsh, tyrannical. It is to remind you something that Jesus says to a bunch of dudes that wanted to stone a woman caught in adultery. With whoever is you is without sin. Go ahead, cast the first stone. Self-control is what keeps you from drifting beyond the pen. Self-control is what brings all of those and preserves all of those in one place. But self-control is not the goal. What Paul is saying to us in this passage is that the goal of self-control is the gospel. That that which he has done in us and for us is meant to move through us. Just before what we read there in verse 23, Paul gets all autobiographical with these Corinthians here. He says, To the Jews, I became like a Jew. To those who are under the law, I became like those under the law. To those who are outside the law, like the Gentiles, I didn't give up on fulfilling the law of Christ, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't give up on that, but he became as those who were outside the law. He became all things to all people. Why? That he might save some. That he might, in verse 23, as you heard it, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. That's the goal of self-control. It is not to prove to yourself, look at how much power I have over all of my desires and all of my inclinations and all of my behaviors. That's great. But unless those behaviors and inclinations and affections are all ordered to this, I'll just call Tony Robbins and say, boy, have I got an example for you. The gospel is to see the point. And he calls, he calls that pursuit, he, he compares it to a race. Why do people run? Why does, why does Zach and Grant and Julian do, why do you do cross country? Is it to, you know, bask at the beautiful panorama of lovely leaves out there? Mm, yeah, kind of. Is it to, uh, you know, enjoy the, the sunlight all about you? Is it to, I don't know, Catch a whiff of the aroma of your fellow competitors. Um, no. I know why you're running. You're running to win. That's the point. I'm not just out for a stroll, man. I want to go for that. That's my pursuit. 
If you're not trying to win, why are you running? Not everybody wins, but everybody tries. And Paul is likening a pursuit of the gospel, which is a matter of self-control, which just like athletes do, they buffet their body, they, they beat it into shape, they preserve it, they protect it, they feed it, they give it good enough sleep, they do all of those things that they might compete to their utmost. That's what athletes do. Look, when we talk around here about the gospel is gr- by grace alone, that, that you have no seat at God's table apart from him doing that entirely on your behalf. There is nothing that you contribute to the project to bring you to himself. There is nothing you can do to atone for your sin. There is nothing you can do to impress him such that he finds favor in you. Nothing. When say, we say you're saved by grace alone, we mean that. But if you believe that then a life under grace means that your kind of life word is whatever, it's an exercise in missing the point. The gospel is meant to work in you in such a way that it moves through you. And what you heard him say here in chapter 9, he also says in Philippians 3. He's talking about an upward call. In chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, he says, That I may know him, the power of his resurrection, that I might share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That there is a way of encountering the Lord and living in step with the Spirit that affords you the opportunity and the privilege to participate in his work, even in ways that will cost you. Even in ways that when you put your head on the pillow at night, you will say, what was that for? He's worthy of it. By grace, we are saved unto a life that trusts in the grace. That's what we've been called to. That's what we're made for. Now that, um, that sounds so high and so, that's what pastors say, and so impossible. Um, it's not easy, but it is simple. We are made for that. We are made for communion with him, and we are invited into the commission of God. That's the simple life in him. To commune with him in such a way that we take joy and find our rest and bring our tears and discover a way to put one foot in in front of the other after everything has fallen apart and the night has gone dark. But then also to bear witness unto him. And if he should be pleased to use us to demonstrate his truth and his grace and his mercy to others that they might also be persuaded with the help of his spirit. Okay, what does that look like? It's not the same for everybody. And there's a wonderful essay I commend to you that's in the resource doc this week written by Kevin DeYoung over in World Magazine. When it talks about communion with God and evangelism, he kind of writes an essay about, so uh, quiet time in evangelism, how much is enough? You know, kind of a funny essay. That's kind of a grabber, right? When it comes to communion with the Lord, let me, let me appeal to the analogy he gets in order to suggest to you a principle that he's getting at. Listen to what he says there um, about, like, say, his marriage. If my wife made me check in every day at a set time, kept track of how many minutes I talked to her, and then rolled her eyes whenever I did anything else besides talk to her, that would make for a miserable marriage. But if I never made an effort to get a babysitter, go on a walk with her, plan a getaway, or simply put down my phone and look her in the eye, our marriage would likely grow stale and distant. As in marriage, 
so in pursuit of communion with God. I, I, look, if you're charting how many half hours or hours, okay. But if it's never apart, if you're never still, if you're never quiet, God is sought. He is, he's there, but he's sought. And not because like he needs that, oh gosh, I'm feeling so alone. Why don't you come and talk to me? That's not him. God is not served by human hands, Acts 17. He needs nothing, but he is worthy of everything. Okay, well, let's talk about the commission for a second. Because look, some of you in this room, you are awesome conversation starters. You can take anything and find a way to turn a conversation towards things that matter, you know, away from the World Series and instead talking about something else. And you're amazing at that. And, and then, you know, others of us are kind of like, uh, I don't even know where to start. Well, listen to what Kevin Young also says. Uh, the New Testament encourages us to be ready to explain our Christian faith when asked. It encourages us to make the gospel look attractive by our honest and obedient lives. Our part is to ensure in whatever way God has shaped us and whatever opportunities he gives us that the gospel that has come to us also flows out of us. That's just the Great Commission right there. And that doesn't sound like, oh, I've got to take 15 hours of courses in that. your life bears witness and perhaps words then have an opportunity to land and to hit in ways because they gosh like where does that come from why do you still get up after all you've been through this is what the goal of self-control is because all sorts of things compete for that which i have just spoken of that's the goal and that's the race and that's what we aspire to. But those of you who are runners know full well, especially around North Carolina, that the race course is rarely downhill and not flat very often. A lot of the time it's uphill and, you know, steeplechase, boulders, you know, small animals, large animals. You have to navigate those times. So let's talk about, let's, let's switch metaphors for a second. Can you handle that? <laughs> Let's talk about the grain that self-control has to cut across. Here's a picture of wood grain, right? Everything goes along the grain, or you can cut across the grain. And I would like to use that as a metaphor for thinking about the world as it is and the weakness as you are. And, and when those two things couple together, you will go with the grain of every culture you're a part of. The fear of missing out. The fear of looking different. The fear of um, failing to live up to your peers' expectations about what it means to be alive and real. That's going with the grain. And self-control is actually going to say, i got to cut across it. Let's talk about what self-control is up against and there's four things that Paul mentions. I'm not going to spend equally on each one of them. In fact, I'm going to spend most of the time on the first one. But all four of these, you're familiar with. I'm familiar with them. Idolatry, immorality of a sexual kind, presumption, and bitterness. And the way Paul chooses to invite us into a consideration of what self-control, how it has to cut across that grain, he he embeds everybody who's listening in the story of Israel. 
you heard it. You heard multiple references to Israel's story, mostly from the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers. And he is, in doing so, in talking to a bunch of Gentiles, I don't care if you have never met a Jew in your life. You're part of that story if you're in Jesus. He's a Jew. Oh, yeah, right, forgot that. We're all part of that story. And in being part of that story, you're actually part of every human story. Because what befell Israel and its story befalls every person in every story in every culture in every era. Nothing new is under the sun. All of these exist just in different forms at different times. Let's talk about the first one, immorality. I'm sorry, idolatry. <laughs> Let's get things right. What is it about idolatry? What does he mean by that? It's what he says there in verse, uh, what is it, seven? He goes to this. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It's referring to what happens in Exodus. Moses, you know, goes up top, Mount Sinai, getting ready to receive the law, and Israel's downstairs, and they're kind of like the summit, and they're kind of like, where's he gone? Maybe he left. Oh, maybe he ran off with the money. I don't know where he is. But they're all down there at the summit, and they're like, we have to worship. And what do they do? They, they fashion this golden calf. And we all look at that and go, that's weird. <laughs> why would they do that? I'll tell you why. Because everybody worships. You worship. I worship. I, I become beholden to that which I think is greater than anything, and I give myself to it. And everybody does it. And even in this world that suggests to us it's becoming more secular as we go. Mm. Tara Isabella Burton, she wrote a book. We talked about it during COVID. It's a book called Strange Rights. And she says, religion hasn't been discarded. It's just been, to borrow a, a, a track, a vinyl track imagery, it's just been remixed. And so she says, the remixed hunger for the same things human beings have always longed for, a sense of meaning in the world, personal purpose within that meaning, a community to share that experience with, and rituals to bring the power of that experience into achievable everyday life. Everybody's doing that. You're doing that right now. And there's a lot of people outside this room, up in Asheville and Hendersonville, they're doing the exact same thing, just with different forms and different vocabulary. Everybody worships. And you hear that, and you think, okay, but the golden calf thing? <laughs> I'm sorry, I do not bow to golden calves. And I would say, yes, you do. They just have different names, and they take different forms, and they've been subtly introduced into the way you think about the world and yourself that you had no idea I was giving so much power and importance and allegiance to it. St. Augustine said this, Attractions that lead us astray include to be held in esteem by others, gaining power over them, fear of losing good things, wanting someone's wife or estates, defrauding, and obtaining honor. You look at that list and you go, that's not so bad. What's wrong with that? Ugh. You make any of those more important than a lot of things, you're worshiping them and you'll be consumed by them. I hope you will not hear me exploiting his tragedy. But Matthew Perry died yesterday. It's Chandler being on Friends. And he said this in an interview about a year ago. Nobody wanted to be famous more than me. I was convinced it was the answer. I was 25. It was the second year of Friends. And eight months into it, I realized the American dream is not making me happy, not filling the holes in my life. I couldn't get enough attention. Fame does not do what you think it's going to do. It was all a trick. None of you are as famous as Chandler Bingham, you never will. 
consider yourself fortunate. Any number of things can grab us and hold us and think that they're so important that we will forsake just about every other relationship and every other priority just because we think if that we get, then I will be happy. I want to show you a clip from A Beautiful Life. Beautiful Mind, my bad. It's a different movie. It's towards the end. John Nash, afflicted of mind, nearly lost everything. And here in this moment, he is thinking about a future after having been in all three years, after having been through all that he has been. And we'll just listen. I was thinking that I might teach. A classroom with 50 students can be daunting for anyone. John, besides, you're a terrible teacher. I'm an acquired taste, Martin. <laughs> I was hoping there still might be something I could contribute. What about the, um, well, you know, I've been gone. No, they're not gone. Maybe they never will be. But I've gotten used to ignoring them, and I think as a result, they've kind of given up on me. I think that's what it's like with all our dreams and our nightmares, Martin. We've got to keep feeding them for them to stay alive. In a very different setting, in a very way different thinking about that which we love, that which we hold to, that's what which we pursue, those things can have a hold on us in ways that we never bargained for, not when we started. Idolatry is profound. And one subset of idolatry that he has to mention is that immorality of an intimate nature. I know we got all sorts of tender ears in here, so... Let me just put it this way. Marital intimacy in scripture is embedded in a storyline. And that storyline is one of shared dignity between male and female he created them with uniqueness and distinct gifts in complement to one another. And in that intimacy, there is fidelity. And where dignity and uniqueness, shared uniqueness, and fidelity work together, that becomes the ideal setting in which to bring forth issue and to raise them to being. That's the storyline. That's the one we are given. That's where marital intimacy works. When you disembed intimacy from that storyline, all manner of things go wrong. I referenced this book several months ago by Louise Perry who has an appreciation for things regarding faith but does not subscribe to it. But in that book that she wrote several months ago, and she has taken a lot of shots from a lot of people from a lot of different angles, but she says, listen, we should prioritize virtue over desire. We should not assume that any given feeling we discover in our hearts or our loins ought to be acted upon. Hear that and we go, why does that seem so hard for people to swallow? And then she proceeds to say, intimacy must be taken seriously. Men and women are different. Some desires are bad. Consent is not enough. Violence is not love. Loveless intimacy is not empowering. People are not products. In order to change the incentive structure, we need a technology that discourages short-termism and male behavior, protects the economic interests of mothers, and creates a stable environment for the raising of children. And then Riley, she puts in, we do already have such a technology, even if it is old, clunky, and prone to periodic failure. It's called monogamous marriage. 
intimacy got taken out of the storyline and all manner of havoc was wrought. And self-control cuts across that grain. And where you lose sight of that embedded story, you will lose sight of earnestness. The last two are sort of subsets. He warns about presumption. He says, do not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Again, he's referencing a moment in Israel's history in which Israel said, you know what, we know what we're doing. You're God and, you know, you like to forgive and we like to sin. It's great. We're a match made in heaven. There is a presumption that they embodied, and there in Numbers 21, the the raising of the brazen serpent, which then Jesus references in John chapter 3, when you see the Son of Man lifted up, just as the brazen serpent was lifted up there in Numbers 21, grace is immeasurable. But Paul knows that some people can hear about the grace of God and misunderstand it. And that's why he says in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, he says this, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The grace of God does not mean we don't think about sin or we don't worry about sin. It's that we try to avoid it. And when we, and when we fail, we repent. You can indulge anger you can nurse any number of things and you can tell yourself, you know, grace covers that. And you know what? It does. However, if you think it won't cost you, you're wrong. Self-control cuts across that. Not just presumption, but the last one in the litany four, the four, the, uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, so to speak. And that would be bitterness. In verse 10, we must not put Christ to the test, he's already said, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Again, it, you go back to number 16, Israel has rebelled, judgment has occurred. And what does Israel do in response? They start murmuring. They start grumbling against Moses and Aaron. Something bad has happened, and now they have decided that that bad means something And what it means to them is that they are now entitled to be bitter. Their struggle affords them the justification to hold God with a high-handed accusation, you are incompetent. Friends, all bitterness at some point goes there. It might be towards someone else, but what will sustain that bitterness toward them is to implicitly, if unconsciously, say, you're the one that's to fault. All of these. Idolatry, immorality, presumption, bitterness, they all conspire. They are all what self-control is up against. They all require self-control to cut across the grain. Where then is the grace for it? You have to reckon with what those four things mean for you, and it's this. All of that is in you, and all of that is in me, and there but for the grace of God, I would be acting in similar ways. 
And that's why he says there in verse 11, take heed when you stand lest you fall. Meaning, the day you start thinking, I'll never be an idolater, you just open the door. The day you think, immorality is not my problem. Presumption? Bitterness. That's their due. Take heed. He's telling the story. It's Israel's cautionary tale, but it's really looking at you saying, you have no idea what you're capable of. So what is the grace for it? And there is grace for it. Because right now you're all thinking, sheesh, sheesh. Um, what? Mm, I don't think I can re- resist all that. You're right. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You could do a whole sermon on just that one passage. I want to summarize it in one way. In our struggle against idolatry, immorality of that nature, presumption and bitterness, you are not defenseless. God does not throw you back on yourself and say, Let's see some product. Let's see some progress. He doesn't stand idly by and go, show me what you got. You're not defenseless. He's offered you things. He's offered you resources. In the Reformed tradition, we like to call them the means of grace. What's he just done? He's given us the word of God by recounting for us the story of Israel. That's one means of grace. He's talking to a bunch of people in community. Not a bunch of individuals, but a community. And if you read all of 1 Corinthians, you go, I can't believe they're a church, or it sounds very much like a church. Dysfunctional in every respect. Dumb, ridiculous, hurtful, harmful. But that's a means of grace. Wow. Who needs friends, right? The church is a means of grace. You are to be surrounded. The sacraments which we often take, are a means of grace. But the other, which is a little bit more subtle, but has threaded its way through the whole passage, is not only has God given you his word and his church and his sacraments, he's also given you his presence by the Spirit through the Son. Did you notice there early on, talking about we all ate the same spiritual food, and we all were under the cloud, and we all went through the water, and, and he says, And we all drank from the rock. And the rock was Christ. Wait a minute. I thought Jesus only walked the earth, you know, about 2,000 years ago. No. Jesus was present then in that moment. Jesus was the one who was present when he walked the earth. That's what we read all the New Testament about. And therefore, Jesus is also present to you. Jesus faced temptation in a garden And he resisted the temptation because he knew you would fail in it. He knew it wasn't in you. It's why we began the whole service with Psalm 103. He knows you're dust. He knows you're frail. That's why he had to be tempted and to resist it. Because he knew you couldn't. Not without his help. And that is his grace. He knew Peter would deny him. Before Peter denied him. And he looked at his eyes and he said, you know what? After you've turned back, strengthen your brethren. You're going to fall into a pit. You're going to be sifted by the devil. But when you get up again, remind your brethren what you've been through. 
including the grace that's mine for you. He died to forgive us. He died to bind us to himself so that we might resist the things in that list of things we're cutting across in the way of the grain, but he also died to bind us to himself that even when we fail, he will not cast us off. And that's the gospel. That's the motivation. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. You just sang the gospel. You didn't know it. That's the motivation. I, I, I want to leave you with one final image in that way. And it's from, of all things, the, the, the black stallion. Uh, see if you can find yourself in the scene, and then see if you can find Jesus. If you didn't catch it, you're the wild horse. I'm the wild horse. And I am tied up thinking that I am free in my idolatry and immorality and presumption and bitterness. And I look upon this thing, this one, this child with confusion or frustration or exasperation or fear, whatever it might be, and he cuts me loose. But rather than him come to you and say, Heal! He woos him, woos the horse to himself. Jesus woos us to himself. 
draws us to himself, has his eye on us, comes to us with both courage and patience and kindness and feeds us not with banana leaves on a tortoise shell, but with his own body and his own blood. And in wooing us to himself, we then find that he loves us and our desire is to walk in step with him with the spirit that he gives to us. And that's why it's always fitting on the day when we remember the Reformation of the first thing that Luther had a problem with in the current theology of the day, and it was about repentance, that it was sort of like a once a year thing. He says in his very first thesis, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance, of aligning ourselves with him. You should expect your life to frequently encounter idolatry, immorality, presumption, and bitterness. And in those moments, you are to fix your eyes upon Jesus and how he has sought to woo you to himself, that you might break free of those things that bound you and walk in step with him. That's the gospel. And that's why we give thanks. And that's why we're going to pray now. Father, whatever our obsessions are or our defilements of our bodies or presumptuous upon your grace or of a blindness to our own acrid, angry thoughts, I pray that you would humble us in your sight and loosen us up to see the love that is in your Son and somehow by your spirit to choose a different way to repent from a way that holds us and binds us and in some sense enslaves us help us to see the beauty of the one who wooed us to himself by giving everything that we might be his in Jesus name we pray amen